part two of episode four of Unpacking Light, speaking with Langston Alston, Eloise Houston Herzrich, Nancy Yeagle, and Marshall Alston about a couple t-shirts. I'm not going to do much of an introduction here. Um, listen to part one if you need a bit of context. That's the new one from the Chapel Heart Band called Jesus and Alcohol. Before that, Future Cowboys with More Than a Miracle featuring Tanya Boyd Cannon and Sweet Crew before that with their new one, Long, from their album Officiel Artificial. You're listening to the New Orleans Music Show on WWOZ 90.7 FM and WWOZ.org if you're streaming us online. And after that little country break, we're back. I'm going to continue with the conversation. Just to remind you, I have taken a deep breath and I'm about to respond to Langston and Marshall's speculation about where the shirt might have come from. Okay, I accept that, but I also have another shirt that I can bring to the table. I bought it in Chicago at a thrift store. I love this long sleeve black shirt to sleep in. It's an extra large black long sleeve. Bonus, it has a Chicago skyline on it. It says Mid-America Steel Erectors. Kind of weird. On the side, it says Mid-America. Uh-huh. Also nice. And then also I was like, oh, it's, it's ripped. Uh-huh. It's already kind of like... <laughs> pre-worn and something about it felt special in america trump this is it for working on the trump tower chicago yeah oh my god i think it is so So, yeah as i was describing this is a black long sleeve shirt uh and very charmingly damaged it has a rip in the front of it which shows your belly button when you wear it it's very fashion damage Uh, But what Langston, Marshall, um, my sister, and Nancy are noticing now, which is something I didn't notice until after I bought it and took it home, is that it is a shirt that promotes the Trump Tower in Chicago and is a pro-Trump shirt. So these two shirts are pretty different. Yeah, yeah. polar opposites. Like, that's Trump Tower. For for a while, I was like, nah, it's the Willis Tower. No, no, no. That's Because Trump Tower is, I think... It's not the tallest building in Chicago, but it's really fucking tall. I have very, I have very different reactions to how how to handle both of these shirts. I really respect your inclination that like you wearing this shirt is not the most meaningful life that this obviously once meaningful garment can have in regards to the Juneteenth one. And so I don't think that you sending it back to New Orleans with us is necessarily the most intentional way to give it a more meaningful life. I think that you carrying it around until you meet somebody who you're like, oh, you actually have a relationship to this context and also appreciate like a fine vintage shirt that like feels like a hug from your dad. And so I'm going to pass this to you intentionally. I think that would be a cool life for this shirt. Okay. What Aria just said is, I don't think that you sending it home with us to New Orleans is the most intentional way to give it a more meaningful life. I think my sister is getting at something I'm grappling with in this conversation, namely what my responsibility is with giving this shirt the space for the meaning that it has or the meaning that I've assigned it. I was thinking about my position as a white woman from the Midwest, from the northern United States, whether or not I was appropriating a black American holiday by wearing it on a t-shirt. Here, I was thinking about the appropriation of cultural textiles, patterns, and garments in mainstream fashion. And this got me so far into a place where I imagined the gesture of returning the t-shirt to its origin somehow 
as some gesture of repentance. But this is a complicated gesture because in my preemptive repentance or apology, I'm opting out of the conversation entirely. I'm not wearing the shirt to avoid talking about a culture I don't believe I have a part in. This avoidance is characteristic of white fragility. Because I am a white American woman, this actually is my culture. Slavery is my culture. The history of emancipation is my culture. The lives of black Americans is also part of my culture. The celebration of their emancipation can also be my culture. More on this avoidance later, but let's hear more about this Trump shirt. For this shirt, I don't have the same reverence for it. And I think that because that dad voted for Trump. And I think that you can get rid of this with zero intention at all. You can throw this on the street and drive over it with your car eight times. Also, it does have a slit in the, oh, this, is, this isn't the back. I think it has a slit in the front to tie in a knot so you can show off your belly. Okay, do you want to know? Because then I started making fantasy stories about why that cut is there. And I thought, okay, this is from some kind of fractured family. And it was given to the thrift store because it was vandalized by someone who didn't support their loved one who is a Trump supporter. And then I was thinking, oh, I'll just cut out the Trump this logo. So here I'm allowing myself to follow the fictional speculative trail of why the Trump shirt might be damaged, essentially building a fiction to excuse myself from wanting to keep the shirt. If you didn't hear a little before, Nancy is suggesting to use the shirt as a rag, which is a productive suggestion to keep the shirt functional as an object that doesn't involve wearing it. With my story about some unhappy, politically conflicted American family, I'm rationalizing and defending my wearing a Trump shirt that I really don't even need to have in my life at all. I'm clinging to my defenses. I am being very defensive here. And let's be reminded that moments before, I describe how I can't rally the same defenses or create the same kind of fictions to defend wearing a shirt celebrating the emancipation of slaves in the United States. This does not go beyond Langston. I think the problem, actually, adding this Trump shirt has complicated this a lot more because they're just deeply unrelated. I think you can wear the Juneteenth shirt. Like, you support freeing slaves. I, I hear what Arya is saying about extending this shirt and waiting for the right person to fall into the hands. That's why I'm holding on to it. I would never give it to a thrift store. It doesn't fall into the category of like, do I wear this a lot? No, pass it on. It feels like something important to hold on to. But I feel like if I wore, if I wear it, it's, it's responsible for me to wear it with the intention of talking about it or explaining it rather than just wearing it as an aesthetic. Can I unpack like I have a complicated idea, but not really that complicated of an idea? Uh-huh. I think when you said the word fetishizing, that's an uncomfortable but accurate way that you're thinking about this shirt, right? Like, this shirt is a regular shirt, and Juneteenth is a regular Sorry, holiday. Sorry, it's not regular. When you hold this shirt up okay. to the light, it's, it's perfectly It's a worn. nice, regular it's shirt. It's from literally 82. Sure, sure, sure. That's great. You know, like, wonderful. It's cotton from 82. That's great. Okay, here is where the recording gets really painful to listen to, because I am interrupting Langston here a lot, and I'm interrupting him to basically make a loosely funny insistence that the t-shirt we're all looking at is something special. I can hear myself doing this as a reaction to him calling out my fetishization of the shirt. And actually, we're not really talking about my fetish of the shirt. We're talking about the fetishization of the holiday Juneteenth as a black American holiday and my distancing myself from that holiday because of its closeness to blackness. 
which in turn points out my whiteness. And when my whiteness is pointed out, I begin to flounder. It took me some time to unpack my position in this conversation. And I want to read some words from Johanna C. Luttrell that she wrote in 2019 that might give some context. There are structural and personal obstacles to self-reflection. I might not want to attempt it because sometimes when I catch a glimpse of myself, I see things I would rather not. In general, I like surrounding myself with people who would not show my failures to me. And I might sacrifice even honest respect for risking that kind of vulnerability. Such is the function of defensiveness. Accurate mirrors are uncomfortable and painful, and I generally prefer sacrificing light for warmth. In many instances, I do not have to live in a kind of culture that would encourage an honest self-accounting. So to cover over uncomfortability, I tend to substitute self-praise for self-appraisal, navel-gazing for reckoning. People of color in the United States do at times try to show white people to ourselves, and they are most often rebuffed. We, from here on by we, I mean white people in the United States, this author included, mostly do not want to hear about it, even if we say we do. We do not want to look into that particular mirror, and we must not have our own survival tethered to it. So that's Joanna C. Luttrell in her book called White People and Black Lives Matter, Ignorance, Empathy, and Justice. So, just like for all white people, my whiteness is not something I'm regularly reminded of because I live in a world where white supremacy has ensured that I don't need to think about my whiteness on a daily basis. So when I'm reminded that my viewpoint comes from a racialized frame of reference, it challenges the objectivity of my whiteness, and I panic. When I think something I've done has exposed my embedded racism, I panic. And this is what I'm hearing here in this recording. More about where this comes from later. Let me stop interrupting Langston. You have like other black people and this shirt in your mind together in a very unusual way that uh, has made this shirt more complicated for you than it is for anybody else, right? Like, on a basic level, like, I feel like damn near a majority of people who celebrate Juneteenth don't even really know, like, exactly what day the shit happened on or, like, exactly what they're celebrating. They just know it's about free freeing black people from slavery and it's a good day to celebrate. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it's like you could have a barbecue and, like, wear white if you wanted to. I think you have elevated this shirt to into being a thing for people that it isn't and it now represents like your alienation from black people in like a kind of transparent and a little bit awkward of a way yeah and i think that even just like you meditating on it like to this extent is like uh like highlighting that and i understand why that would be because you live far away from like american black people but it just like living in the u.s and living in the south it it sounds weird to me All right, let me just repeat what Langston just said. I have othered my Juneteenth shirt in a way that has made the shirt more complicated for me than it is for anyone else, somehow making it represent my alienation from black people in a transparent and awkward way. And why has this happened? I remember how I was feeling in this conversation at this moment. 
Langston was telling me that I was overcomplicating something, and I understood that. But what I didn't understand at the time was what exactly was complicated for me. He's also being pretty generous here. He's giving some potential reasons why this alienation might be happening. Maybe it's because I don't live in a country around American black people. He's right. I am a white American that grew up in Chicago, lived for 10 years in Canada, and now I'm living in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. But being in the Netherlands actually doesn't mean that I shouldn't be confronted with conversations of race and racism and how it is operative in my everyday. The Netherlands is one of the world's largest colonizing countries, and as a non-Dutch resident, my exposure to this history is routinely obscured. Granted, I did not take high school or university-level history courses in the Netherlands, but the way I passively receive Dutch national history is through museums and other institutions, and it most often focuses on local industries that produce the icons of the Netherlands that you're going to see at Amsterdam's Schiphol Airport gift shops like Delftware Ceramics, which is, by the way, a result of the Dutch colonial merchant power that reached China and Japan in the late 17th century, the textile industry from the center of the country of Brabant, with cotton supplied by colonies plantations, and, of course, tulips, another result of merchant exchange in the Middle East. So these are all visual stereotypes of the Netherlands, all of them subsequently supported by places outside of the Netherlands. Many of those places are in direct relation to the colonial history of the country. I'm offering those stereotypes here to remind all of my non-Dutch listeners of them, and also so that these associations can be subsequently associated with other colonial and racist histories on the same terrain. In a book called White Innocence, Paradoxes of Colonialism and Race, Gloria Wecker writes about the separation of Dutch colonial history from the country's national history in curriculums of the education system, which typically calls colonial history quote, Dutch expansion into the world, which keeps it a specialization, or an exception, to the nation's historical identity, and therefore keeping a sufficiently safe distance from the visibility of how colonialism, race, and white supremacy are embodied in this country. Using both her lived experience and her experience working in the Ministry of Well-Being, Health, and Culture in the Netherlands Parliament, she explains how Dutch political policies are organized to establish and embed racial exclusion. There's a through line in this book of active invisibility, active denial, and insisted white innocence. And I think this is important to bring in here for a Dutch context and also in relation to how I've been dealing with the othering of this shirt in a conversation with Langston. I want to read a section of white innocence now that expands her ideas a bit. Innocence thickly describes part of a dominant Dutch way of being in the world. The claim of innocence, however, is a double-edged sword. It contains not knowing, but also not wanting to know. And here she quotes Charles W. Mills, quote, The epistemology of ignorance is part of a white supremacist state in which the human race is racially divided into full persons and subpersons, even though, or more accurately precisely because, they tend not to understand the racist world in which they live, White people are able to fully benefit from its racial hierarchies, ontologies, and economies. End quote. Using the R word, which in this circumstance she is referring to racism, in the Dutch context is like entering a minefield 
the full force of anger and violence, including death threats, is unleashed. I expressly mean innocence to have this layered and contradictory content, this tongue-in-cheek quality. Notwithstanding the many daily protestations in a Dutch context that, quote, we are innocent, racially speaking, that racism is a feature found in the United States and South Africa, not in the Netherlands, that, by definition, racism is located in working-class circles, not among, quote, our kind of middle-class people. Much remains hidden under the univocality and the pure strength of will defending innocence. In sum, innocence speaks not only of the soft, harmless, childlike qualities, although those are the characteristics that most Dutch people would wholeheartedly subscribe to, it is strongly connected to privilege, entitlement, and violence that are deeply disavowed. So this is from this is just from the introduction of white innocence. And the book continues in chapters that unpacks how innocence is accomplished and maintained in the Netherlands. And I think it speaks volumes um, about systemic racism and how colonialism has perpetuated the invisibility or the unacknowledgement of whiteness, uh, not only in a Dutch context, but in a um, world context. So I'm putting this here in response to Langston's proposal that maybe it's because I don't live in America that I'm distancing myself from black Americans and the history of the t-shirt. I use Wecker to show that this isn't a reason that systemic suppression of the acknowledgement of whiteness is active and at play, both in the North American context where I grew up and in the Netherlands where I live now. Okay, let's go back to the t-shirt chat. So uh, I'm just going to be honest. I think your discomfort with the shirt and the fact that it's about freeing slaves is just odd. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, it's a good thing that slaves were freed. Everyone should celebrate that. It would be normal to wear something yeah. applauding the fact that we don't have slavery in the U.S. anymore. Yeah. I don't even really think it's that complicated of a gesture. You know what I mean? Like, once you know what Juneteenth is, you know what the fuck it is. Like, if you don't feel like slavery is good, then you can probably wear the shirt. And then, like, if somebody's like, you know what Juneteenth is? You could be like, yeah, yeah. I'm glad there's not slavery. And they'd be like... Me too. And then everybody has a nice day. You know what I mean? Like, it's not... Yeah. I, I'm like, I'm kind of tweaking on the fact that you've, like, mythologized it this much because it's, it is a nice vintage shirt, but it's not like a like a holy relic. Yeah, then if you like it so much, you should wear it. And if you feel conflicted about it, I think you should unpack why that is. But I feel like it has more to do with othering black people than it does anything to do with Juneteenth or the shirt. Especially if you agree with the thing it meant. Like, the Trump shirt is just trash. You can just throw it away. Trump like shirt's you could trash. throw it away here, and we would then put it in the trash. That's if fine. If you wanted us to be responsible, we could take it to the place to recycle rags and turn them into rags for resale. Yeah. Yeah. As a note to listeners, I didn't throw away the Trump shirt. I've brought it back to Rotterdam, and I will post on the Unpacking Light website what I've done to it. You can tell me what you think in an email. We're going to continue with this conversation after another New Orleans radio break. After this break, my sister asks a great question, and it gets to the meat of this episode. But first, a song. You are listening to the sounds of New Orleans, WWOZ 90.7 FM. It's your boy, 
Michael Jackson inside the building. Gang, how are you doing? Every Thursday right here from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. It is time for me to do my thing. Man, look like we are wide open. The city is open up. Look like we getting out there. Hope you had a great Easter. Hope you're protecting yourself. And uh, look like, gang, we are ready to uh, move a little bit farther. So let's just keep it safe, keep it moving, and let's have some fun like we're about to do right here. By starting off, we're going to bless this show right here with your boy, Action Jackson. We are live on WWOZ 90.7 FM.
my question is would you feel the same trepidation around wearing a like milton family barbecue 1992 kenosha t-shirt that you would feel about wearing a juneteenth t-shirt or do you think that it is because of the racial and cultural significance that is pushing you away from the juneteenth shirt Uh, i see what you mean no i think that my position is that because i understand juneteenth only in the explanation of it and not through the embodiment of the celebration of it i don't know where my position is as a white person to represent that holiday maybe the question about like the kenosha family reunion 2015 or whatever but i wouldn't know but my guess would be that that is like a midwestern family that perhaps is white is that i would have more access to dressing using the material of my own culture than it would be wearing a symbol that's outside of my culture as a northern american northern white american yeah it's just maybe about the extent of how deep i know yeah i guess two things one in my experience every family reunion shirt is from black people i don't know if that's true but (laughs) yeah uh and then also in my like i don't know like you don't represent juneteenth even if you wear a shirt that says juneteenth it's like you're not like the embodiment of juneteenth you're not the ambassador for juneteenth (laughs) Like, it's just, it's not really that big of a deal. You know what I mean? Like, you're, you've made it into more of an event or more of a sacred moment than it is, I think. And yeah, it, it feels. It's a white guilt yeah, thing. Yeah, it makes me uncomfortable it's to see you feel so guilty about thing. it. Did you hear what my sister just said? In case you didn't, she said, it's actually a white fragility thing. What is a white fragility thing? Well. Let me unpack that. Uh, It is a term that maybe was coined by a woman named Robin DiAngelo. But to be honest, saying anything that was coined by one person makes me pretty suspicious. So who knows? But DiAngelo has written for years, certainly a decade, on white fragility. She wrote a book in 2018 called White Fragility. But I am going to read from a 2011 essay also called White Fragility, to give a definition of white fragility and to give context of what my sister is referring to. Quote, White fragility is a state in which even a minimum amount of racial stress becomes intolerable, triggering a range of defensive moves. These moves include the outward display of emotions such as anger, fear, and guilt, and behaviors such as argumentation, silence, and leaving the stress-inducing situation. These behaviors, in turn, function to reinstate white racial equilibrium. Anger, fear, and guilt. Argumentation, silence, leaving the stress-inducing situation. These are recognizable. D'Angelo writes about triggers for white fragility, and the first trigger in a list she's made in the same essay is, quote, suggesting that a white person's viewpoint comes from a racialized frame of reference, parentheses, a challenge to objectivity, end quote. Listening back to this interview and reading this article afterwards makes me pinpoint exactly that trigger as something that I experienced while recording this interview. There is something about conducting an interview that can feel like you really need to control or that you have control over a conversation. At least this is what I'm experiencing learning how to conduct interviews in this way. 
A challenge to objectivity could also be a unexpected turn in a conversation that was conducted and established by the interviewer with the two microphones. One of the ways I introduced Unpacking Light in the first episode was that it was a project that would explore who has the privilege to pack light. In another project description, I asked, does disconnecting with our material surroundings aid in a neoliberal agenda to create a singularization of the individual as an untethered, unhistoricized, independent unit? This is about objectivity and individuality. In a section of D'Angelo's article called Universalism and Individualism, which is from a list of factors that inculcate white fragility, she writes, quote, Whites are taught to see their perspectives as objective and representative of reality. At the same time that whites are taught to see their interests and perspectives as universal, they are also taught to value the individual and to see themselves as individuals rather than part of a racially socialized group. Individualism erases history and hides the ways in which wealth has been distributed and accumulated over generations to benefit whites today. It allows whites to view themselves as unique and original, outside of socialization and unaffected by the relentless racial messages in the culture. Individualism also allows whites to distance themselves from the actions of their racial group and demand to be granted the benefit of the doubt as individuals in all cases. The disavowal of race as an organizing factor, both of individual white consciousness and the institutions of society at large, is necessary to support current structures of capitalism and domination, for without it, the correlation between the distribution of social resources and unearned white privilege would be evident. So now I'm just thinking that this shirt, maybe in my wearing of it, makes my whiteness evident, makes my whiteness something that I need to stand behind and articulate, rather than something that is just a universal or making me someone that is an individual separated from the idea of whiteness. I would also like to acknowledge another layer of the fragility, which is that uh, we're very sensitive to white people posturing as woke and aligned with what we now, in a very like uh, minimalist way, term the Black Lives Matter movement. There's a lot of concern about like posturing and about virtue signaling that actually makes people steer away from like outward signifiers that may read as insincere, you know? Yeah. And I think that that's like a level of fragility as well. Like I think I can comfortably name it that, that like might play into this. Should I, should I not wear this shirt? I mean, that's exactly where it's coming from or a lot of where it's coming from for me thinking about, okay, how much does wearing a t-shirt end up being a branding gesture that ends up being like a quick alignment with a politic that maybe isn't embodied or performed but rather just worn and so but hold on because like if you have politics that align with abolishing slavery which you should then it's fine to wear it yeah yeah like if your politics don't align with abolishing slavery then you shouldn't wear the shirt. I kind of think the shirt being an issue is more problematic than the shirt being a non-issue, if you know what I mean, in the sense that it causes you to center yourself in a conversation that isn't your conversation. And like, if you were just to take the shirt as a non-issue and be like, oh, I generally agree with that, that would be fine. But like for you to be like, 
I need to make this shirt a sacred object and give it a sacred life. That makes it weird. Yeah. I, I also relate, though, to the desire to make all objects sacred objects and give them a sacred life. So I guess I can say that, like, I see you doing that with all T-shirts. And while this one has a unique subset of situations going on that are causing you to not wear it, like, I I do see that you relate to all of your pieces of clothing that way. Like, getting a T-shirt from the thrift store and being like, look at how perfect it is. It's got holes in the collar. And, like, just really, like, worshipping it and, like, making sure it doesn't go into the dryer and, like, extending its life as long as possible and then cutting it into rags and making it into a rug, like, three years down the line. It just sounds like something you would do. I made it up. I think you value this garment, like, a thousand percent more than anyone else currently <laughs> living. Honestly. I love this. <laughs> yeah. Whoever first bought it off the rack never thinks about it. I would bet you. Yeah, they might have had too many in there. Just like, I got to let the one from 82 with the holes in it go. <laughs> and, like, it's nice. Like, you, sh- you should I- – I think the easiest thing to do is for you to just wear it and just enjoy wearing it. Yeah. Langston says here that I'm centering myself in a conversation that I'm not the center of, which he's right. I'm not the center of the conversation of Juneteenth. But I am going to put myself in the center of the conversation of white fragility and hold myself accountable for how this conversation evolved. And I also do worship this shirt. And I responded initially to how the cotton felt, how worn it is, how perfectly the size fit me. This episode was important for me to make because it touched on messages that garments can have and also the way that certain histories, garments and textiles can carry. But it did turn into also a reflection on my inability to reconcile with my position or my responsibility in those histories. A lot of that resistance is coming from the resistance to relinquish my innocence, the fragility and vulnerability I feel being confronted by my whiteness. And in this conversation with these wonderful people, I was able to really hear these come into play. So this shirt unpacked far more for me than I was expecting it to. I would not have had this conversation without the attention and patience and openness of Langston, Eloise, Marshall, and Nancy. And I do want to thank them for their time and having this conversation with me. I sent an earlier version of this episode to my sister for her consent and her review. And she said, actually, it left me feeling pretty unfinished because I want to know what happened to the shirts. What did I do with those two shirts? The Juneteenth shirt I still have. It's in my closet and it's coming up to springtime. It's about the weather that I would start wearing it. And I'm going to start wearing it this season. It looks really nice without a bra because it covers up the nipples with the graphic. This conversation that I had made me understand that there is nothing wrong with wearing that shirt. And if anything, I'm willing to have a conversation with anyone that asks me what Juneteenth is. The Trump shirt? The Trump shirt I cut up. I made it into a new shirt. I retained the shape of it, even that belly button cut that I said I really loved. But I cut out all of the graphics, replaced it with different kinds of fabrics, and made it a collage. I'll post some images on unpackinglight.com 
so you can see both t-shirts. The Juneteenth shirt you'll see just straight up as is, and the Trump shirt I'll only show in its modified form. <laughs> 